Well, good morning. If you wouldn't mind, please uh, join me in prayer. God, we've come this morning hungry. Hungry for food, or hungry for experience, or hungry for uh, fellowship, or hungry for whatever. And I pray, Lord, that you would build in us a hunger for your word. I pray, God, that you would uh, help my words um, speak only your truth. Truths unchanged from the dawn of time. May it not be uh, me who speaks to the hearts of those in front of me, but may it be you, Lord. To your glory and honor forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is Thanksgiving week, and I thought it would be appropriate to do a Thanksgiving message, except it's not on Thanksgiving in terms of turkey, although I really do like turkey. Uh, there is a tradition in most of our families, I'm sure, where we all sit around the table before eating our meal, uh, where we begin to maybe list off some things that we're thankful for. Is that something you guys have ever done? Yeah? Um, if you employ this tradition, I want to encourage you all to listen to some of the things uh, that are listed off by other family members on Thursday, or friends, or whoever you have at the table. Listen for physical items, like health, a place to gather, the food on the table, or perhaps some device like an oven or an iPhone, both of which are invaluable, I'm telling you, because the oven cooks the food and the iPhone takes the picture of the food to put on Instagram. <laughs> But listen also to metaphysical items like family, love, or peace. And why, why is it that the physical or the metaphysical items always take precedence in so many people's minds? You, you hear almost the same things every year. I mean, they're always branded a little differently. But friends, as Christians, if there's any one single thing that should occupy our minds in the season of Thanksgiving, it's the splendor and power of our Savior. Uh, the unnamed author of the book of Hebrews does extremely well in summarizing that topic of the splendor of the Savior for us today. Uh, go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, if you don't mind. Um, and some background on the book while you turn there. If you're a Jeopardy fan, you found out this last week that Paul authored Hebrews. Uh, that is probably not true. Uh, we, we actually don't know the author of Hebrews because it's, there's nothing stated in the author, or stated in the beginning, like Paul always says, I, Paul, right? Blah, 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 blah. So we don't know the author, but many in church history have ascribed the authorship to Paul or maybe one of his closest allies in ministry. Uh, there's theories like Barnabas. There's, there's, there's theories like Timothy. There's, there's theories uh, like uh, uh, Junia, uh, the, the girl in Romans that's, that's known among the apostles. There's, there's a lot of theories about it, but you know what's great about a theory that can't be tested? You can never know the answer. So just, just say you don't know. Anyway, but... <laughs> um, so it was probably actually written after Paul's death, probably like between 60 to 70, uh, maybe even later. It wasn't even quoted until like 110 AD. Um, which, which would mean that Paul didn't pen it because you can't, make, you can't write something when you're dead. Uh, just, I don't know if you guys didn't know that. Um, but it does make sense that it was someone who trained under Paul or maybe had similar training as Paul because the structure is really, really similar to Paul. Paul likes to say, main thought, uh, four, 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 evidence, 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 therefore, conclusion. 
And that's exactly how Hebrews is written. Uh, you have to, you, taking it piecemeal, uh, you kind of get these chunks of, uh, of topics. And the author is writing to the Jewish Christians, hence the, the, the book Hebrews. Anyway, it's not about coffee. It's, um, uh, but the author is writing to Jewish Christians, and that's also why he has so many Old Testament quotations in it. Um, I've said this a lot in the church history Wednesday night study um, <coughs> over the last few weeks, but, but, but to be a Jewish Christian by the, by the end of the fourth century meant that you were a heretic going to a cult. That's what it meant. Because by the end of the fourth century, there was no such thing as a Jewish Christian. There was just Christians. Gentile and Jew both worshipped in the same place. And so people who put an emphasis on the Jewish aspect of, of things um, ended up going crazy pants. Uh, it's, it, it, was just, it was just how it went. I mean, you can look up some of the, some of the cults at the time, and they believed some funny things. They, they always denounced Christ in some way. They, they, they either said he was a man that grew to godhood through his righteousness, or, or like, the, like some of the Gnostic gospels, they believed that Jesus only appeared to be human. He was actually just all spirit, um, and he just pretended to eat food, pretended to nap. Um, and and uh, Hebrews was written to combat these groups in their infancy. But they ended up growing up anyway. But if those people would have read the book of Hebrews, man, every single one of their, their, their heresies would have just been punched in the nose. So um, the author is demanding that his readers listen, listen to what uh, he's saying and hold on to the message of the true gospel. Um, if, you, if we were to read chapter 2... He gets to his actual introduction and he says this, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So the book of Hebrews is trying to steer people back into good doctrine. Because bad doctrine, bad teaching ruins souls. And the author is calling for his readers to be more discerning in what's being said, so people won't be led, led astray and proved to be deceived. So with those things in mind, Jeopardy excluded, uh, let's, let's go ahead and read Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Just get the section, but I'm really going to focus on verse 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. So our focus today is on verse 3. There's three descriptions of Jesus that he, at the beginning of verse 3, is, is trying to steer your mind towards Christ. Um, so we're going to look at these three descriptions. First, he is the radiance of the glory of God. You all know what that means, right? What's radiance? Kind, uh, it's not quite light. So Webster's defines radiance as light or heat, so both, 
as emitted or reflected by something. So I don't know if you've, there, there was a, when I drove school bus in Jervis, there was this house where they had space blankets uh, taped around every single window. And when you were in front of that house, if the sun was shining brightly enough, you could feel the radiance of the sun reflecting off the space blanket. Now, this person actually was trying to cut off radio transmissions. They were a little on the nutty side. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but, but, it, but that's, that's what it is. So what the author of Hebrews is saying is that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God in the way that heat is the radiance of the sun. The sun is distant. It's a distant, bright, burning star. Yet on a cold morning, when you walk outside, you can feel the sun's radiance warm your skin as you step into its rays. That's what Jesus is. He's the radiance of the glory of God. If Christ is the radiance of God's glory, then that's a splendid picture of Jesus coming to earth. He incarnated, right? But he was emitted out of the glory of God. He was, he was sent out of the glory of God. God, is, God the Father is so wonderful to emit salvation to us. And all we have to do is turn toward it and receive its warmth. If we stay hidden in the shadows, if we flee from Christ, we don't feel the warmth. We don't feel what, the, what God's glory is radiating. Isaiah 45, 22 says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Or if you're a King James person, uh, 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 look unto me that ye may be saved. Look unto me. Now, I would not tell any of you to look at the sun. It's too bright. You're going to burn your retinas. It's not pleasant. But, but to, to feel the warmth of God's love, all we have to do is turn to Christ in the way that all you have to do on a cold morning is put your hand in the sunshine. This is a similar vein to that image that Jesus gives his listeners in John 12, 44 through 50. I'm sure you all know what I'm talking about. I don't need to read it. Just kidding. Uh, Jesus, Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. All that's needed to receive the radiance of God's glory is to come to Christ. The light of a lamp does not exist or radiate without the bulb emitting it. In the same way, God's, Jesus does not uh, uh, exist without God the Father's glory emanating out from him. Therefore, Jesus is the proof of the Father's care for us. This includes the grace of salvation. It includes the providence of his care for the birds of the air, the lilies of the field. Right? God so cares about the birds of the air that he feeds them. He so cares about the, the lilies of the field that he clothes them. And not even Solomon was arrayed in as splendid a rose as, as, as a lily of the field. 
But that's, that, Jesus is that manifested, radiated care for us. It also includes the infinite value of the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son to make us more like Him. And infinitely more good things that the Father radiates to us in Christ. And Christ applies because of His Father. How grateful should we be for that? That our God has radiated His Son to us out of His glory. How, though, do we think of this, right? The heat of a crackling fire is not the fire itself, right? Uh, if, if you are looking at a fireplace, you can feel the heat coming from it, radiating from it. But if you went up and you decided to grab one of those burning logs, you'd get burned. Actually, my son found that out the other day. Not, not with a log, but with a fireplace. Uh, but, but if we stand far enough away, we can safely feel the heat. And in a similar way, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. Christ is described as the exact imprint of the Father's nature in the next description. So, so what is an exact imprint? Now, that's one of those fun words uh, in the Greek that when we translate it, it doesn't necessarily, or like when we look at it in the original context, it doesn't exactly mean uh, anything that we can make an understanding of. They didn't have photographs, so using a photograph as an example isn't, ex isn't, isn't the best thing. Um, the, uh, an imprint was always something that was like not quite the same. And some, some descriptions that I read would be like if, if you had a big pile of snow and you fell face first into it and then somebody lifted you out, there's an imprint of your body there. Or, or like imagine if you guys came in and you saw, you saw me standing up here waving at you, but I wasn't exactly moving. But gosh, it looked like me. And you went up and you started poking me, but it, it felt like me. But it was, you know, a statue of me with some sort of synthetic skin or something. An exact imprint. Uh, not a clone, <laughs> but, but an exact imprint. It's not like there were two Scots up here. Oh, what an awful world that would be. But, <laughs> but not, not two. <laughs> and my wife with the burn. <laughs> so, uh, but, but yeah, so, so, so exact imprint, but, but he, he adds a qualifier of his nature. So, so when we, when we think of a word here, to describe Jesus is the exact reproduction of the Father's nature, or, or the exact representation of the Father's nature, is what the author of Hebrews is saying. And you can kind of see how the author was struggling for a word there, because in the original context, it would have been like a statue, like, a, like, a, like of a Greek god or something, or like the Caesar, which was a Greek god. Anyway, but, but, uh, but it, it, like, like he's struggling for a word. He's saying that Jesus, Jesus is exactly what the Father's nature is, but, but imprinted and, 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 and sent out. So notice also that the Father says that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature, his nature, the Father's nature. He's not a clone of the Father, like I said, but he's a representation. Uh, this argues against bad theology, by the way, that says that God was mean in the Old Testament, but nice in the New. Because if Jesus is the exact imprint of his Father's nature, he's, he's the same. God's nature manifested is Jesus Christ. 
God has always been the same yesterday, today, and he'll be forever, right? Hebrews 13, 8. Malachi 3, 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. And actually, the, the, that statement is the ground of a promise uh, that, that I think is, is, is eternally valuable for, for us as well. But Malachi 3, 6 in its totality says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Meaning God doesn't consume his people in wrath. God doesn't wake up having a bad day on the wrong side of the bed and just decide one day, you know what, people, you suck. And then just kill everyone. God doesn't do that. How do we know that? Because he does not change. How do we know that in the New Testament context? Because we look to Jesus and we see God's nature manifested, imprinted in physical form. And we can apply this same principle again in John 12, 45, like I read, when Jesus says, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. To look at Jesus is to see the perfect representation of the Father. The Father is not some capricious, angry, frustrated character who just needs his son to go, calm down, Dad, calm down, calm down. He, 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 God the Father is perfectly patient as Jesus was perfectly patient. Perfectly truthful just as Jesus is perfectly truthful. Perfectly gracious just as Jesus was perfectly gracious. Perfectly confrontational, just as Jesus was perfectly confrontational. Christ, to see Christ is to see the wisdom, the knowledge, and the power of the Father when, when people look to Christ. And I think another way to say this, and I think this would be helpful, is that, that, that God the Father's nature is on display in Jesus Christ. Since Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father's nature, we see that the Father's nature is displayed in Christ. So, so uh, John 5, 19, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to, say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. That means that Jesus loves the way his Father does. He has compassion the way his Father does. He serves the way his Father does. Because Jesus does nothing that he hasn't seen his father doing. How much joy should fill our heart with that? To know that God is consistent. He is the same across the board. He, the one true God, is displayed in Christ. The same God who ought to judge us for breaking his commandments has shown us his nature in sending his own son to die for us. These things are true because Jesus is the exact imprint of his father's nature. We should be thankful that God's nature has been so clearly displayed in the son because we can look at the gospels. We can read the gospels, read the New Testament. We can go back to the Old Testament and we can comfortably say, yes, this is our God. This is the one that we worship. This is the same God. There is no difference. There is no change. We need not any other proof of God's love for us than Jesus Christ. And our hearts should feel warmth and gratitude for this. Okay, but what, 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 
does Jesus have any true power then, right? Is, is he some sort of a conduit or a channel of just his father's power? Is, is he some sort of a mannequin or puppet that you stick your hand up and control? Is that what the father was? Was he just, or I'm sorry, the son? Was Jesus Christ just a puppet of the father? No, says the author of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews has that last description saying it's Christ's power that sovereignly holds the universe together. Let me, uh, let me, let me make my Bible show that verse. The verse is actually really hard in this part, um, that final description, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Um, Without, without trying to make a bad joke here, uh, there, there's a gravity in that sentence that's lost to our English ears. Um, there is no Greek word for universe. <laughs> they, they, they didn't think of other planets. They thought of stars. They thought of, they thought of the cosmos, which, which could mean both Earth, right, or, or out there. <clears throat> the, the Greeks... The Greeks um, didn't have a concept of, of, of space in terms of us sending a rocket into it and landing on other planets. Um, so, so just to reorder the, that, that portion of the sentence, um, maybe retranslate it. I, I want to give you my, my really rough translation. Um, and his power's word upholds all things. That would be... That, that would be a, a restructuring, kind of a re, reshaping of it. Um, the emphasis in that section is, is, is on the son's power. And the author is saying that he uses that power to hold together every single facet of creation. All things. All things. Jesus is, is, is declaring that all things hold together. That's, that's what the author is trying to say. Or as one theologian put it, there are no rogue molecules in God's creation. They are all subservient to Jesus' declaration. There's not a single aspect of creation that's not under the supreme rule of Christ as its sovereign. That includes things physical and spiritual, by the way. We, we, we can very easily say, oh yeah, angels are subservient to God. And actually, that's where the author of Hebrews takes it for the next uh, about 20, 30 verses. Because apparently some people would start worshiping angels and elevating angels, uh, when in reality, Jesus is superior to the angels. And so the author is saying, don't, don't, don't. Like that's, that's like, uh, uh, um, you know, going and driving your car, but trying to use the tire to turn it instead of the wheel. It's just, <laughs> it's improper. So, uh, so this, this really is a tough pill to swallow, to even say that Satan is subservient to Jesus. We know that one day Satan is going to be defeated by Jesus, but if we read the first two chapters of the book of Job, we find out that Satan can't do anything without God's permission. So, so Jesus is the sovereign. He is the supreme ruler over all things. And it's in this verse that we actually find a, a, a ground to what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 8. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That all things in Romans 8, 28 is the same all things in Hebrews 1, 3. So if I'm going to pull a translational trick, and we know that for those who love God, 
uh, the, the universe works together for good. <laughs> I, I just putting the same words, the same, the same Greek word and just shoving the thing in there. But, but the translators are trying to give you the scope of this, of what the author of Hebrews means, while Paul is meaning something a little bit different. But we see that ground there. And the word translated word here is not logos. If you know Greek, you know logos, right? Log- uh, John 1.1, 1, 1, he is the word. The word, uh, the word was God. Or the word was with God and the word was God, right? Um, that's the Greek word logos. This word actually means something else. Logos means like logic, like a, like a, like a logical statement or, or it was a Greek philosophical concept. This is the Greek word chrema, uh, which chrema means essentially like spoken word. I am, I, I am rhema-ing right now. <laughs> I am speaking things. Words are coming out of my mouth, putting many of you to sleep. But words are coming out of my mouth. I am rhema-ing. And the, and the author of Hebrews is giving this present tense understanding of it, right? Jesus is currently dictating the events, uh, fulfilling his father's plan to bring about the culmination of all his promises to restore all things. The present tense uphold or bears or carries out the power of Jesus's word is holding all things together. So if we put all that stuff together, we can know that God works all things for the good of lo- those who love him. Like I said, Romans 8:28. Which means all your sufferings, your humblings or your humiliations, your struggles, your disasters, the flood in the basement, God works all things, including the swimming pool that we're building on accident for the good of those who love him. If you truly believe in Jesus' supreme rule over all things, like the author of Hebrews is saying, then you, you don't ever need to lose faith. You don't ever need to lose trust because that means that every facet of your day is under the supreme authority of the one who was the radiated glory of God who is the exact imprint of of the Father's nature. You don't need to lose trust. How grateful should we be that we're saved by the one who holds the universe together, who who takes every facet of creation, all things in the fabric of reality, um, and and flows them, flows reality itself, who, who, who speaks and dictates and through whom all things were made. That's who you were saved by. How grateful you should be. This isn't, this isn't some demigod that rose to power that came alongside and said, hey, you know what? I, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and usurp the previous rule and I'm going to go ahead and make a new, new lineage of grace. No, it's the same God. The same one. This is God, the way, the truth, and the life who is incarnated and become the perfect sacrifice for the sins of his people. He became the Savior and your Savior, and he holds the universe together. What warm wonder and awe and reverence we should have in our hearts for the splendor of the Savior. We should have endless joy at these things. 
And we should confess our gratitude for these things around the Thanksgiving table, shouldn't we? Are these, the thing, are these how you think of God? Do you remind yourself of these things? Do you hear me proclaim them and find yourself at the edge of your seat or your heart warmed or anything? Or do you have no excitement? How Baptist are you? Anyway. <laughs> um, or is God nothing more than a shadow in the back of your mind who you grow frustrated that follows you wherever you go? Or is he a pill that you turn to in the middle of your ache? I've never once in my memory heard a person at Thanksgiving say they were thankful for being caught doing something bad at work. Or, or, or thankful for Tylenol. <laughs> I've never heard anyone say that they're thankful for those things. Is Christ just an overbearing boss to you? Or is he the radiance of God's glory? The warm rays of sunshine, of grace and mercy on cold mornings when your heart is in, is in suffering? <clears throat> is Jesus a pill you begrudgingly swallow, knowing it's good for you? Or is he the exact imprint of his Father's nature, the living embodiment of God's love and power? Is he a lottery machine you try to put the right numbers into? Or is he the splendid, saving sovereign who works all things that he speaks into existence for the good of those who love him? Friends, we should offer far more gratitude toward Jesus than we do, shouldn't we? Do you wish to be a more thankful and grateful people? then place your thankfulness in Christ. There was a Thanksgiving one year. We were at my parents' place. This is after, after I, was, uh, I was at Moody. Maybe it was Christmas. And, and I, I remember the question was posed, like, hey, what are you thankful for? Like the tradition came up. And, and I was like, you know, I'm really grateful for union with Christ. And like, my family's not really Christian, okay? <laughs> my, my cousin's... Anyway, they all just kind of looked at me. They're like, yeah, that's nice. And then they just kind of move on. <laughs> they had no concept of what it meant to be united with Jesus Christ. I may have been trying to make it awkward. And I may have been reading a book on the subject at the time. But anyway, the goodness of God's gifts, like working cars, warm places to gather for meals, Ovens and iPhones, seeing loved ones that you rarely get to visit with. If you are truly thankful for Christ or to Christ, then, then those things will become opportunities for praise instead of objects of worship themselves. When you sit around that Thanksgiving table, when you say what you're thankful for, don't say mashed potatoes, although I am grateful for mashed potatoes. Say what you're thankful for in Christ. Thankful people live differently. Grateful people live differently. When our <coughs> thankfulness is centered on Christ, we love more fiercely. We act more sacrificially. We care more deeply toward others inside and outside the church. I have confessed to several of you that I have had an awful week. <laughs> I've had a week where it was more difficult to be thankful for Christ than, uh, than I'd care to admit. 
I have had more sit down and try to pray and you just hear that angry buzz in your ears of all the problems that, uh, that, that come about on a daily basis um, than I would like to admit also. I, I would love to say, you know, on horrible weeks like this week, I find myself closer to Jesus because I'm suffering for Christ. I wish I could say that. I, I can't. <laughs> and maybe some of you are, or actually I can't use the word maybe, I'm sure several of you are more sanctified than me. <laughs> You're holier than me. Praise God for that. He's done a great work in you. But frankly, on weeks like this, I find myself grumbling. I find myself frustrated. I find myself gritting my teeth. Meanwhile, in the back of my mind, I'm trying to plan for this sermon on the splendor of Jesus Christ, and I can't, I can't get past the slime of my daily week. So therefore, may our gratitude this Thanksgiving holiday be centered on Christ. May the words of the author of Hebrews ring in our ears as we sit around the table, whether today or, or, or Thursday or whatever day you're going to celebrate Thanksgiving because even I, I have to go to my parents' place and it's going to be on Saturday and it's on another day. Anyway, so, so whatever day it is, may your gratitude be centered on Jesus, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his Father's nature, and the splendid sovereign who saves. Let's pray. God, these words ring in my heart. They, they, they ring in my heart in ways that uh, I, I, I want to live them out, but God, I find myself cold. I need the warmth of your grace. I need your sun radiated toward me. Father, I pray for repentance, and I confess uh, that frankly, uh, I am a sinful man. I'm a worm. And I need your righteousness. A worm clothed in righteousness is, a, is an odd image, but it's exactly what I need to be. God, let me be grateful for you, for your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Once God's enemy, now seated at his table, Go in peace with gratefulness in your hearts.